0: All right everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership podcast. I am here with the infamous, the one and only Steve Ryder, Steve. It's so good to have you here, buddy. Bro, it's always great to get together with you
1: over yeah. a cigar especially.
0: Yeah, we're sitting here having a cigar in the Lion's Den here in Colorado Springs. Now, many of you, you have heard Steve's voice introducing this podcast for years. And I'm so thrilled that we have such an amazing community, mm. and many of you are aware, some of you might not be aware, that a year and a half ago, mm. Steve lost his wife, Elizabeth. Yeah. Amazing, amazing woman, mm. and it has been one of the hardest journeys, one of the most incredible yeah. things I've seen any person walk through. and. We're here today to really talk about Steve's story, his journey, and also what he's doing with what he's gone through today to really do. You know, we talk a lot about, folks, what do we do with what God's put on our heart? If you guys remember, because I've shared this a lot, right? The first thing that God said to me when I was in his presence at the accident was all things work together for good. For those that love the Lord. And sometimes, you know what? What happens to us sure doesn't make sense, does it, Steve? No. And it's hard. And in that, how do we find meaning? How do we find purpose? How do we put together the pieces? And whether it's, you know, the death of your wife, the death of a relationship, the end of a career, a business, health challenges. I mean, there's so much, but how do we out of those Ashes, that ambiguity, that uncertainty, actually start to put things back together to to move forward with some semblance of meaning or purpose or direction when it just felt like everything in our life got ripped apart. And that's what we're here to talk about today is. Mm. You know what? And you know the great thing is, Steve, because you've just been such a great friend, is you know what? You're still just in the messy middle, honestly. figuring all that out like you're coming toward you're getting some you know to a place where those pieces are coming together Mm. but what I love is you know just the conversations we've had as you're just walking through this so with that brother I'd love for you to just maybe there's a lot of folks that just haven't gotten to know you they haven't been listening guys they they haven't listened to
1: those early episodes when I was your co-host
0: you were my co-host like Guys I don't know if you realize this or maybe some of our newer listeners. Yeah, we've been doing this for what? Seven years.: 2014.: 2014. 2014, 2014 we started. I remember
1: uh, editing those first interviews in the hospital when Elizabeth was in there with the congestive heart failure and a large chart.
0: That's right. I remember coming you to can, visit you.: you came, And you
1: and Donna would come and visit and hang out, and
0: That was seven years ago. We're up to almost episode 400. so and then what happened was... As the eternal leadership really focused on how do we bring our faith out into the business world and the work that we do, Steve was going to a much deeper
1: place spiritually and also physically. Health wise. And health wise. And really also focusing on my business. Yeah, and focusing. Right right, right turn media was really, my audio production business was really starting to grow and. Yeah, it was cool. It was very cool to finally feel like I was coming out of the wilderness.
0: Yeah, come out of the wilderness. And that was like, oh, wow, Oh my gosh, well, seven years. So like three, four years into this, yeah. right? So many of you guys know Steve as the voice who does my intro. You're like, well, this yeah. guy's a cool voice. <laughs> Who's Steve? But now here's Steve. So I love the fact that I get to introduce you to our... To a whole we,
1: bunch of people that probably have, don't know me other who, than the voice.
0: Who don't know beginning. you as well. And if you guys have heard... A lot of my story, and I've, I, and I've talked about, you know, my accident. You guys are familiar with my accident. Steve was there when it happened. We actually met the day before my accident happened.
1: Yeah. And we were a down family there. Family Talk Donor event in Great Falls, Montana at a ranch there. It was 11,000-acre ranch. Oh, it was beautiful. Really? It was unbelievable. It was so fun. And Doc brought me out there. Dr. James Dobson brought me out there to interface with some potential donors. And also for AV presentation, as well as to if, if any interviews came up that I was there. And so that first night, Doc and everyone that was there share their story, including Joe Silverio and myself, I believe. And Joe's works security for Doc and, and helps him out a lot. And so anyway, there were two guys in particular there that I was like, ooh, I really want to get to know these guys. And you, because of your Midwest, our shared Midwest roots, that natural Viking Packer rivalry, which we talked, you know, some trash that night about it. And I just admired you for your career, where you had come from Navy fighter pilot orders to go to Top Gun injury derailed starting the entrepreneurial journey. And now you're this really successful financial advisor in Denver. And I was like, Oh, cool. He's in Denver. I can go get together with coffee with him sometime. And so, I mean, you and I, I really felt an instant connection with you when we talked. That night,
0: Uh, I remember that, and then the next morning, over breakfast, before we headed down to the pivotal moment in my life at the stables, because it was about a mile away. Mm -hmm. Because remember, I think I took a four wheeler down. We both did. did.
1: We both took four wheelers down.
0: And you were like right behind me, and we were the first people there. I was the first one saddled. Yep. Which is the reason, and then when I had my accident, nobody else was saddled. I was the, and then you were the actual person that shared with me. Because you watched the whole thing happen. And everybody, imagine what you would be thinking as you watch somebody who you had just met, and this horse takes off at a gallop uncontrollably. And then you shared with me, like he bucked me. You heard the thud from 100 yards away. And the first reaction Steve had was to run toward it. You went and jumped on that same four-wheeler, and you were the first one to get to me. And you lowered me down because I was freaking out because I broke C2 and C4 in my neck. Yeah. And I believe that God used your work through you to get to me so quickly. Because when I was at Craig Hospital, I was at a, a hospital that only does spinal cord and traumatic brain injury. I was there for yeah. 20 months. Yeah. And they could not believe that I didn't have spinal cord injury. And I think that your intervention so quickly, because you jumped on a four-wheeler and you so, ripped over there yeah to, to like you were the first person on the scene by a mile. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, I remember as the horse took off, I was standing at the gate and I started walking towards where the horse was taking you saying, all right, the horse has to turn, the horse has to turn, the horse has to turn. The thud... And the first thought was, what's the quickest way I'm going to get there? Run back to my ATV or sprint all the way over there? And I knew the ATV was going to be the fastest way. So I ran back to the ATV. And as I'm riding really fast across this pasture, hearing this voice in my head, slow down a little bit because you don't need to be another accident. So... Got there, jumped off, and then some other people started to come around. And right at the point, I was starting to bark out orders. Okay, you take his, you stabilize his head. You grab his shoulder. You grab his shoulder. and I'll get him around the legs, and we'll need to lower him down. You just naturally kind of went down by yourself. And yeah, because I think your body, and I think I said this on a couple podcasts in the past, I think your body, because you had a collapsed lung, I think your body was naturally trying to pull itself up to try and get air.
0: Yeah, because I had all the, all the, the whole left side of my chest had been collapsed. Mm-hmm. All the ribs were broken. Yep. And the broken ribs punctured that left lung. So... Yeah. And, oh my gosh, the panic that induces when you can't breathe. Oh, yeah. But, like, my brain couldn't process. Yeah.
1: First of all, my, my head had been smashed in. <laughs> you broke or you, you fractured or spider fractured every bone in your skull except for your right orbital and your jaw, right?
0: Actually, my jaw and my right cheekbone. In yeah. my nose, other than those bone areas, every bone in my skull, if I understand it correctly, had a was either broken or fractured. Yeah. So so we go back. So th- we go back away. So therein started an amazing, like total bromance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yes. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, you know, it's amazing. You know, for me, Steve, there were so many friends of mine that were used to me being this, you know, kind of high capacity, you know, person that was out doing all these things and they would come in and they visit me once and they wouldn't come back because they couldn't deal with seeing me in this situation. Like I literally had to learn how to walk again, talk again, think again, drive my left eyes blind. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really hard, but you know what? Steve kept showing up over and over and over. And guys, the Eternal Leadership podcast that you've been listening to for years, and I hear so much amazing feedback from so many people. The reason that it exists is because of Steve Ryder. So Steve, thank you. Because I'll never forget, I was because I, I was blinded, and I couldn't read. And my left eye was blind. But in the f- mental fatigue from the brain injury and the blindness, mm-hmm. I started listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. I'm like... What if I did a podcast? You know, I want to help people get through what I'm going through. Like, I have not figured this out yet, yeah. but I'm going through something, and it's really hard. Yeah. And I want to be a kingdom influence. I want to work with believers, people that are following Jesus, that are in a leadership role. And I remember I, I didn't know who, who to call. So I called Steve. I said, Steve, I have this idea of doing a podcast. And I said. And you said, Hey. I'm thinking about doing a podcast. What if we join forces? And that is how this, there's no way that eternal leadership would even exist without
1: the collaboration that we did together. Yeah, I had that background, working 15 years for Dr. James Dobson, chief audio engineer. The focus was inducted in the National Radio Hall of Fame, now just the Radio Hall of Fame, in 2008. Beat out Dr. Laura, beat out Bob Costas, beat out Howard Stern in 2008. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. And then left with Dr. Boyd. Well, you help start and Howard Family Stern Talk.
0: kind of do the same format, right? Dobson and Stern? Uh,
1: not really. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I knew I could help you in that aspect. And I was just looking to start to you know, build a platform because I had transitioned out of audio into financial right. advising, yeah. which you were my number one mentor in that journey. And really, I'd, I'd made that transition because I was so burned out my last six months that I was there with Dobson were really tough and it wasn't because of doc at all. It was just, I was doing two daily radio broadcasts with half the staff i had at focused to do one and it was Mm -hmm. killing me and it was killing all three of us that left focus because we were doing things the focus way, quote unquote. And we couldn't step back from the workload and figure out how can we get this done with the staff that we've been given. And so it killed us. The work relationships really became toxic. And the last two months that I was there, I lost 20 pounds, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping, was throwing up multiple times a day, just all of a sudden just throwing up or dry heaving. And because of that physical burnout, when I would sit in front of a computer, my eyes would physically hurt. And I would listen to audio my ears would physically hurt. And it was like my body was saying, stop it. This is what got you into this. And so it was that time that you know, as a financial advisor in my first year, all the vets told me I was crushing it. I was doing really well. Yeah, you did. But, but then Elizabeth got sick. And it was those assets that I had under management that really kept us afloat because I could really start to focus on Elizabeth and be home with her and wasn't able to get out and prospect like I was before. And, but so I'm really, really grateful for those people that, you know, entrusted me during that season. But then as I physically recovered, that love for media really reawakened.
0: It did, but I, and I want to get back to Elizabeth, because you moved out here from Wisconsin.
1: Wisconsin. Go Badgers. On Wisconsin, baby. That's go pack, so go.
0: That is so hard to say. Um, <laughs> you moved out here to follow this beautiful woman, and that completely imploded on you after you moved out here,
1: and right yep. after that, you met yep. Elizabeth. Yep. A couple of years later. A couple, couple years, years later. later. Couple years so later. you're out here. You're in Colorado. And, I, I, and, you're like, and it was a much better deal. It was a much better deal.
0: Oh, yeah, and Elizabeth was just this bright light. She was amazing, this little, like, pixie. She was like, what, 100 pounds? Maybe If, if that. If so that. She
1: she was usually, when she was healthy, she'd hit 100. But when she was sick, she'd, I mean, after she was diagnosed with the autoimmune stuff early in her marriage, like in the first year, I believe, second year. Second year, she was officially diagnosed. Her weight was pretty much in the low to mid, I'd say mid-90s, mid-90s.
0: Yeah. So, teeny little thing, but and you know what? The thing that I always admired about Elizabeth, because her, light, you know, with her autoimmune disease. The pulmonary
1: her, hypertension, when we started Eternal Leadership, she was officially diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension.
0: Right. And you never knew Elizabeth by the challenges she was going through. Everybody knew Elizabeth by the person she was. Yeah. And how she served people, how... She, how she served you, yeah. how she served others. The boys like At her funeral. People talked about, like, you know, she met me one time and said, can we get together for coffee? And the impact that she had in people's lives over and over and over, the stories that were told were like, she was an amazing person.
1: The most emotionally intelligent person that I've ever met. No she doubt. She was.
0: Absolutely, and, and, no and, doubt. And I, th-
1: I think even that, and she didn't let her sickness become her identity. Right. she refused to let her sickness become she was naturally optimistic mm-hmm. which I called myself a realist and I was more of a pessimist really in reality I was a pessimist but she really helped to just continually reinforce the positive and really helped to change my paradigm when it came to that and I learned so much from her those 18 and a half, those 19 and a half years we were together the 18 and a half we were married yeah yeah, she has been the most important person, influential person in my life. And I admire her. She was an amazing human being.
0: So, like you shared with me, because I've only known you, well, I've, I've known you the last, what, uh, 10 years? I just had my 10-year anniversary of my accident. So, you said that Elizabeth helped shaped you in a way that was very meaningful. What did that look
1: like up until that point, until I met you? It was mainly through just her example of that positivity of not letting her sickness become her identity. It was also just the way in which she, she, I saw her continually striving to be a better mom, a better wife, a better human, to work through her past because her mom's a great human being and I love her to death. But she had Elizabeth when she was 18 and my father-in-law got married and then divorced when she was, when Elizabeth was 10 and her mom, wasn't an emotionally healthy person growing up. Hmm. And her mom really started, Elizabeth and her mom both started to go through this really deep counseling, inner healing, working through the past. Go, go is what we call Elizabeth's mom. That's her grandma name. She was sexually abused by her stepdad for years. And so she had all of that pain, pain of abandonment by her father. Her father was just, you know, didn't completely abandon, but, you know, it just wasn't around. And so she had all of that. And so she was a really angry person and abused Elizabeth yeah. em- emotionally and physically, some. So think about this as an adult,
0: Elizabeth, folks that are listening, go, go. Elizabeth's mom credits her healing and her faith to the influence that Elizabeth, her daughter, had in her own life, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, what a legacy.
1: They were best friends. They were best friends. As they were both going through that journey, I saw their relationship deepen. Mm. And, and, I mean, they talked daily, daily. And there were times where, where I wanted time with Elizabeth and she'd answer her mom's call and I'd be like... You need to get off. Like, seriously? This is our time now. Seriously,
0: honey? This Come is our time. Now.
1: But they, they really had a great relationship. And really, honestly, I think I think she's had a harder time with this than I have. I think in part because, I mean, I've shared this on the podcast before. in you know, anecdotally, as well as I think when I told my story, Elizabeth almost died during Matthew's childbirth, and the seed was planted that this was going to be my journey. Now,
0: Matthew's your son. Matthew's our oldest son. Oldest son. And yeah. you have two boys, Matthew two boys. and Caleb. Matthew and Caleb. It's 15 right. and 17 now. And uh, you know what I want to ask you, Steve, is, oh, it was just over a year and a half ago, because things, you know what? when we, You're talking about when we started the podcast, and mm-hmm. Elizabeth had just been diagnosed with you know, pulmonary hypertension. And congestive
1: heart failure, and con- enlarged heart. Doctors came to me when we went into the hospital and they said, Steve, this is an end-of-life kind of situation. They were basically telling me she may not make it home. And... And this is like eight years ago now. Yeah.
0: So think about that. So you hear, like, your wife, love of your life, you've had this amazing life with two kids and that, you know what? The
1: end could be very close. Um, and then two days later, the head of pulmonology, who Dr. Badish, who all the nurses told us was world renowned, a world leading expert on pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. He pulled me aside separately outside in the hallway and he said, Steve, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a very real possibility. Your wife won't be around to see your youngest graduate high school. He went on to explain that because of the pulmonary hypertension and the Hickman line that was going into her chest, it was pumping the mm-hmm. meds to keep that managed, that it prevent that it presented an infection risk. And he said, you know, that's it. And then the other one is eventually the meds stop working. These are the best meds we got, but eventually they stop working, and it's just a slow heart failure death. Mm. And so he said, Prepare yourself, get ready. This might be your journey.
0: How did you process that? Because that was what six years before. I mean, Elizabeth passed away. We're like we're here having a cigar because six years. It's been eighteen months since uh, five and a half years later she passed. Yeah.
1: Um, Once I recovered from the shock, and I posted this on Facebook two days after Elizabeth passed, I said, "Once I recovered from that shock, I made the conscious decision, the intentional conscious decision." That I was going to love my wife to the best of my ability every Mm. single day. Mm -hmm. So that way, if it turned on a dime and she was gone, I'd be able to look back between that diagnosis, that news and her gone and have no regrets, no regrets. And so I was going to love her to the best of my ability. That was huge for me. And I said this on Facebook. I'm so grateful that I got that opportunity, Mm -hmm. that wake up call. Because when she almost died with Matthew, the seed was planted. And when I would work on broadcasts for Focus and Family Talk, and they would talk about grief or they would talk about losing a spouse, something in my spirit just kind of perked up a little bit and said, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And I learned so many lessons, so many lessons that in the last 18, 19 months now, that applied to this journey.
0: You know what? I know, like myself, my, my dad, I lost my dad last year. He is my closest friend ever. And I know that there are so many people who have lost somebody that is so dear to them. Mm. You know, in that, for you, what would you share with people out there that are feeling that same, they're grieving, that sense of loss, or maybe it's one of their best friends is going through the same thing. Like, how do I help them? Like, what would you share with some of these folks?
1: So, when it comes to somebody that has lost someone, get grief counseling. Period. End of story. The day after Elizabeth passed, Mark Ryling, who's a dear friend, he lost his wife 10 years earlier. I had met him on a Family Talk event. His wife had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Actually, she'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a year prior to us meeting. And I thought, oh my gosh, you have pancreatic cancer? You're crushing it, you're doing awesome. You're gonna beat this. Within a year, she was gone. Mm. It turned for the worse and she was gone. And I made sure to reach out to Mark and check in on him because he and I connected instantly on that trip. I mean, we were Mm. like bros. Same demented sense of humor and just, we just connect. You'd love Mark. You'd absolutely love, you'd connect with him really well. He shot me a message, actually a comment. And he said, Hey, if you still don't have my phone number, here it is. Call me anytime. And I called him the next day because he could answer a question that only another widower could answer. Mm -hmm. And anyone that's listening that is a widower, I was getting friend requests on Facebook from women that weren't friends with my wife all of a sudden. And I was like, what the hell, bro? He's like, dude, this is only the beginning. You'll have women at church that'll bring you there, bring you a meal and give you an extra long hug, you know, to kind of bring you the meal to sample their wares. And I was like, well, screw that. I'm just not going to church anymore. He's like, don't do that. Have your pastor run point and just let everyone know same distance, Keep arms length.
0: Keep did you moving. find that that did happen?
1: No, because because I immediately called Justin and I was like, you, you, now Justin's you, your pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I, I called him up and I was like, you need to run point. He's like, absolutely. He said, it's not going to be a problem, but I'll, I'll make sure to, to let those women know. And that's the way it was. But at the end of that call, we, we had a great conversation. I don't remember much, but I do remember this. I remember that conversation. I remember at the end, he was like, can I give you a piece of advice? I said, absolutely. I said, do whatever you can to get your kids into grief counseling, mm. whatever.
0: So not you, but the kids. Yes.
1: Yes. Because he said, Steve, So Mark married a widow and together having lost spouses, they facilitate grief groups in Southern Oregon through grief share. And he said, Steve, we see a vast difference between the kids that get grief counseling and the kids that don't. Kids that don't, alcohol, drugs, acting out, grades, anger, you name it, they go through it. But he said the kids that do, it's not that they don't have issues, but they have the tools to be able to process what just happened Mm. and be able to, you know, understand and process and get that stuff out rather than letting it just, you know, stir and, you know, grow emotionally and not letting it out. And so within two weeks, I found a grief counselor uh, that um, specializes in... She's here in Monument. She teaches actually at Denver Seminary. She specializes in grief counseling and teaches seminary students
0: So how grief counseling. So question for you.
1: Yeah.
0: How did you find somebody... Like, if I needed a grief counselor, what would you say? Okay, John, here's how you find
1: somebody that can really help you. Start looking. You can just do an internet search, grief counselor, your town. Do that. And then just talk with them on the phone for a little bit. See if you connect with them. So for me, I reached out to a fellow holy smoker. I think I've talked about this in the podcast in the past, but I'm I'm a member of what is believed to be the world's largest private cigar club called Holy Smokes. It's all business and ministry, men and women mainly men. We get together here in the Springs once a week, smoke cigars, hang out, talk about life. And it's the, the most authentic relationships I've ever had in my life. And, Agreed. Yeah. And also the greatest human beings I've ever met are holy smokers. Yeah.
0: It's like especially. the conversation we've had for the last two hours before we hit record. Yeah. It was, real. Amazing it was real. It was real. Yeah. It was real. And it yeah. was deep.
1: And it was good. Yeah. And I now know I have some really good prayer points for you moving forward. So yeah. I love you, brother. You are yeah. one special dude. Thank you. Yeah. So I reached out to a holy smoker who's a counselor in town, and I really connect with him. He's a, actually a marriage and family therapist, Dr. Mark Humphreys. And I reached out to him. And I said, Bro, I just lost my wife. You got room. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Sorry, man, I'm packed. But I'll give you these three names one was a counselor, a former counselor at Focus. And, uh, um, I love Willie. He's a great dude, but one of them once once Evie Evelyn Baudette said, "I specialize in grief counseling, and I teach it to seminary students at Denver Seminary." I was like, "You're it, you're it, you're it," and the boys loved her. I mean, she's really a kind of a grandmotherly figure. That's important. Yeah, they really could, especially Caleb. Really connected, and Caleb's more the emotional one, and he really, really connected deeply with her. And um, he's actually since we finished up, we wrapped up. He's actually asked, hey, can I go see Evie? Sure, heck yeah, let's that's, do it. That's yes, without huge, question. huge, <laughs> right? Yes, it's gigantic. It's gigantic for, if, for, a, for if a, a 14, 15
0: year old saying, can I go talk to you, Evie?
1: Yeah, it was gigantic. It was gigantic. And so that would be my advice for someone who has lost someone get the grief counseling. And
0: I want to echo that because you know what? After we went through our whole, you know, my accident, in, I was not the person I was before. It was, no. I think it was harder on my kids. It was harder on my wife, way harder than it was on me, and harder on the kids, more than I realized. And we actually interviewed two or three different people, but we actually met with Chad Brugman, founded uh, Red Rocks Church mm-hmm. here in, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And when Michael had some really, or one of my <coughs> sons had a, a, just some really stressful points, he didn't want to talk to me and Don about it. But you know what he said? Is you know what? I can talk to Gary about it. And I got to tell you, for me, that was so comforting. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like it should be me. I felt like, you know what? The fact that, so whether it's maybe the loss of a spouse or a major family, you know, an accident like we had or whatever it happens to be, but you know, your family's broken and dysfunctional. Go find somebody that understands the issues that can help your family.
1: And here's the that thing. is huge. And here's the thing that I've found and heard from a lot of people. There are garbage, quote-unquote, Christian counselors. There are oh, some my gosh. crap ones out there. And so... Re- re- There's some really, of the ones
0: we met as a family. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah. Like, okay. Well, like, even my kids. Like, we go meet with somebody everybody recommended, and I'm like, oh, heck no.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so re- really... I'd say, start to just ping your network and just say, Hey, you know, I mean, especially if it's for grief counseling, you can be very open about that because you obviously lost someone. You can just say, you know, Hey, I'm looking for a really good grief counselor, you know, and just start to ping your network that way.
0: And your experience was honestly compounded. I'll never forget the day you called me and said, Hey, the, uh, just came, Elizabeth, Because this wasn't the first time she was brought
1: by ambulance. No, we had many.
0: Yeah, many many trips. But you would call me and be like, hey, you know, this is kind of serious. They just brought Elizabeth to uh, the Colorado Springs Hospital. And then they moved her to the Anschutz Medical Hospital. Yeah. And this was a year and a half ago. So COVID was in place. Yep. And I remember, like, you guys call me like, okay, I think she's getting better. We're FaceTiming her. But they would not allow you to come in and visit because of the COVID protocols. Mm-hmm. and um, Despite us both being negative for COVID. Yeah, and you even, you even went and said, okay, I went and got on my own a full PCR, two, three-day test. I'm negative. I want to see my wife.
1: And they said no. And They said no. They said the only exceptions. So I tried getting an exception. I figured if I just work my way up through the chain, I'll be able to get an exception. It shouldn't be a problem. They'll let me in, and the answer was no. And I kept working my way up through the ranks. And part of it, though, Elizabeth... And, and no one would take my calls.
0: Right, and Elizabeth at the time was not, like, in the category of terminal. No, it was... It was, it was critical, so, it was serious, but it was not terminal. So they said, sorry, no visitors.
1: Elizabeth is a casualty of the way in which we shut down. Because right at the very beginning of COVID, she thought she had COVID. So, I mean, literally... Friday, I forget, I forget the day in March, but you can look back, and it was the day that the NBA postponed the season and the NCAA canceled all the tournaments. Men's basketball, women's basketball, all the tournaments. They canceled them all. They said, we're not doing it. I had just flown to Wisconsin the day before for the boys' basketball tournament. My college roommate was the head coach of undefeated Stratford Tigers, Stratford High School in you know northern Wisconsin, kind of north-central Wisconsin. And undefeated, this is a team that was dominating. I mean, this was a team 10 years prior when these kids were eight years old. He called me, and he was like, CB, my nickname is Cool And So they call me CB to this day. He's like, CB, this team, I think I can win state with as eight year olds. And so this was one I was super excited for because this was going to be Kurt's state championship. And Chandler, his oldest son, was a senior. They had uh, two career thousand point scorers on that team. One of them is a uh, offensive lineman for the University of Wisconsin, so they're big center. And they had these, you know, these great scorers. And it was just this was it. And they were hitting their stride in the playoffs. And when I got out there, they made the announcement that you know it's family, immediate family only. So I couldn't get to the game. So I watched it on streaming with a buddy of mine. And dude, they were just, they were on fire. I mean, it was close in the first half. In the second half, Kurt made adjustments and the team pulled it together and they dominated. And so I knew, I knew I was going to be going to state with these guys. And, you know, I didn't know how they do, you know, once they hit the final four in their division. So all of a sudden, NCAA cancels. Wisconsin cancels their tournament and Elizabeth calls. I think I have COVID. Come home, please. So immediately got a flight, I got a one-way ticket from Milwaukee on Southwest to Denver. Friend picked me up and came home. And she immediately got a test. It was negative. And over the course of the next seven weeks she was up and down. And because there was such a high false negative rate, and because I was starting to exhibit COVID symptoms, they thought we both had COVID. And so they were treating her virtually. Because we had an oxygen condenser, because we had a pulse oximeter, because we had a blood pressure cuff, because we had all that stuff. You know, hey, if your oxygen drops below this, call us. If it drops below this, immediately go to the ER. And when it would drop below the call point, we'd just bump up the oxygen. She'd bounce right back up. It'd be okay. But she was up and down over that, over that seven weeks. And it wasn't COVID. It was a bacterial infection that developed into pneumonia and sepsis which you can't diagnose over a virtual visit. You, you cannot, can't. I can't, you can't. No. And sadly, because her doctor is part of the UC health university, of Colorado health system. They have special rules. And I didn't know about this. I, I had a malpract- a couple of malpractice attorneys that told me this and they were like, you had a real case. You really did. But because UC health is special exemption, I only had six months. Whereas all other doctors, you have two years. And so I heard the two years, and I was like, okay, cool. I've got some time. I can heal. I can recover. And by the time I reached out to a malpractice attorney, they were like, sorry, six months passed. You're out of luck. There's nothing you can do.
0: Mm, Sovereign immunity. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So she's hospitalized up and down, up and down. And that last week, I really started to notice she started to decline before she was hospitalized on April 28th, 2020. She mm-hmm. woke up at about three in the morning throwing up, not even able to keep a sip of Gatorade down. And at that point, we knew she needed to go to the hospital. And as soon as she got, they got in there, yeah, it's pneumonia. It's serious pneumonia, which she's had serious pneumonia before. And she's bounced back from that before. But this one was different, I believe, because of the isolation. 21 days there in the hospital. I was never once allowed in. There were times where she was so weak that I genuinely thought. Once I hung up on FaceTime, this is the last time I'm going to talk to my wife. Moved into ICU at one point, halfway through. Got to call at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, something like that. Your wife's bleeding in one of her lungs. We're moving to ICU. Don't come up.
0: Why? Don't come up. Don't come up.
1: We think we've isolated at the next call. We think we've isolated. It. It's a couple small arteries. We're cauterizing them now, giving her some coagulants to stop the bleeding. Don't come up. Could you have come up? I would have been there 90 minutes. Less. I probably would have been speeding pretty good.
0: No, I know. I'm saying. Will they have even let you in the hospital? Nope.
1: Nope. And I had friends who were telling me. So at this point, I was starting to squawk to the media and starting to get some local, local news. I had some publications in Denver that were starting to write stories and, you know, getting my story. And but you so, called
0: so, me and you called other people and were like, okay, how do we... I want to visit my wife. You're Facetiming. She's declining. We reached out to—I know you did. Your state senator, mm-hmm. your state representative. The, I reached out to my the U.S. Governor, congressman. congressman. I reached out. U.S. congressman, and, and I got, the mayor—the mayor of Aurora, where the hospital is. Right, Aurora, right. Mm-hmm. The board, the head of the hospital group. I, I had people trying nobody to reach out. Nobody would to even— the board. nobody even have a conversation with you. Nope.
1: No, no. So my state senator my state rep, my U.S. congressman, they did take those calls. But when it came to the hospital, they wouldn't take the calls. The only people I could talk to, I could talk to was the head nurse on her floor and the patient advocate office. And when it came to the head nurse, she told me the only exception is imminent death. I said, but that first night that she was there... The next morning we had a conversation and she said, Steve, I thought I was genuinely going to choke to death on my own phlegm. Doesn't that count? No. She just moved to ICU. I tried again after she moved to ICU, no. No, no, no. And the patient advocate office really, really was unpleasant. They were not patient advocates. They were just advocating for the hospital's policies, which was so grotesquely offensive to me.
0: So, you know, let's think about this today, right? 18 months later. I think there's a lot of people that don't understand the dynamic that's in play. Because we're, we're going to talk about how the impact has had not only on you, but your boys. The policies today in this world with, with Delta and Omicron have not largely changed much. I think a lot of people have this perception that things have gotten better but you know, what is the reality today of people who actually have a life-threatening situation outside of COVID who currently are like... I had COVID this spring, mm-hmm. and I was in ICU for almost a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was bad. And the one thing I was thinking about was you and Elizabeth when I went in there. I'm like, you know what? Because the policy, this just a few months ago. Guys, yep. this is what... November of 2021, when we're recording this, this is six months ago. The policy six months ago, which has not changed, is there's no visitors on the COVID floor. Exactly. And I knew that if this turned for the worse, and I got within a few liters per minute of oxygen of being ventilated, which is not a good sign. No. That when I said goodbye to my wife in the little, you know, turn in. When she checked me and they wouldn't let her in because I had COVID or suspected COVID at the Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. hadn't been tested, I knew that I would not have any visitors. And the thing that I was thinking about is, what if that's the last time I get to see my wife? Exactly. Yep. And what if this is the last time I, and I didn't get to say goodbye to my boys in person. Because four or five days into this, as it got worse every single day, I'm FaceTiming the kids trying to put on a brave face thinking, what if I don't actually get to tell them all the things in person that I wanted to share with them? And that hasn't changed Mm -hmm. as far
1: as I understand it. So I'm still getting calls to this day of hospitals clamping down on all visitors to where if someone's staying at a hospital because of Delta, because of Omicron, they suddenly are scared and so they clamp it down. They'll clamp down to where you get one visitor for only one hour. And I'm getting calls still to this day. I got three calls in the last two weeks. Two moms and a mother-in-law hospitalized. Two went in with COVID. One went in for a procedure, ended up getting COVID after four days. All of a sudden, no visitors. You would think, I mean, really, you would think at this point in the game, they would have a plan to give those people the love and attention that they need and you know, have hazmat suits and you know, whatever is needed to be able to give people the physical touch that is needed, because study after study after study after study shows physical touch, having loved ones there, having support, having people love you, speak life over you, rub your feet, etc. When you are hospitalized, aid, help in the healing process. And study after study after study after study shows that loneliness, isolation, increases mortality. Depending on the study, 26 to 50 plus percent. And I saw another study that basically said elderly patients on the most lonely end of the spectrum are 2.5 times more likely to die prematurely than people who have a strong support network, people there with them, etc. I totally get it. I totally get the need to protect doctors, nurses, staff, other patients. I totally get that. And when this was happening, I said, I understand the need to clamp down. I understand that, but we need to think of creative solutions and I understand fully that when you're in the thick of it and you remember the reports in March and April of New York having massive problems and we saw what was happening in Italy and we heard the rumors of what was happening in Iran and these other hot spots. I totally get that, you know, things were crazy in March and April. I totally get that. And when you're in that place, you cannot think creatively. You can't think of creative solutions to give the individual what they need, because I've, I've said it from the beginning, we need to balance protecting patients, doctors, nurses, staff, but giving the individual what they need, which is physical touch, love care. I believe the reason Elizabeth came out of that end of life situation was because we were there 24 seven. I'd be in there two or three days. Her mom would be in there one or two. Right. And then I'd be back she in was two never or three alone. days. She was in there for three weeks. And we were always there. We were rubbing her feet, speaking life over her, mm-hmm. praying over her, casting that vision for our future, encouraging her, just giving her what she needed. And the doctors were blown away at, at her recovery coming out of that. They were blown away. In fact, at one point, Dr. Bull, her, her pulmonologist, he was like, I'm thinking about pulling out the Hickman line, but I'm not sure. And this is like three months after she was home. We're like, hold on. I, I, I was like, is this really the best move? This quick? Do you see this normally? He said, I normally, I, he said, I never say this, but I'm thinking about it. And we, we ended up coming to a place where let's slow it down, let's just see how, how it goes. Hickman line, and never ended up coming out, except for her Heavenly body. But I believe it was that that brought her out of that end of life situation. And, I and, go and to this was grave. six years ago.
0: Yeah. And contrast that with the last three weeks of her life and really what that meant to your boys. N- not really being able to say goodbye because what you've done since then is create the Never Alone project and folks, there is something we can do that is so powerful, that is so meaningful, that that has a generational impact. But what was the impact really on your boys? I mean... Mom's not feeling good, she gets taken away to the hospital, they get to FaceTime her a few times, and then the next thing they know that their mom's
1: gone. So in the lead up, before, before she was hospitalized, I for some reason, for some reason, unquote, unquote, was waking up at about 5, 5.30 in the morning. And I'd take that time to, you know, Put on my earbuds and listen to some music, make some coffee, pray. And there was something in my spirit that was saying, this is, this one might be different. Mm. This one might be different. And so I really made an effort because there were days where she'd be in bed most of the day, just exhausted, not feeling well. And I'd look at the boys and I'd say, you're on your effing device, be on your effing device next to your mother. Mm. And I'm so glad I did that I'm so glad I did that I'll get to to your question Once I finish the story I'll get back to the story So she's moved into ICU Two days before Mother's Day Actually really the day before Mother's Day And we had a FaceTime call We had a couple FaceTime calls on Mother's Day And she was depressed And Elizabeth never got depressed She never did And finally, our conversation turned to, what if this is the one you don't come home from?
0: Mm.
1: I told her, I said, babe, as hard as it's going to be, I promise you, we'll be okay. You've poured into us. You've given us all the tools. We'll be okay. One of the central, we rarely fought, we rarely fought, but one of the central disagreements we would have. I remember one time she didn't yell, but she spoke up loudly and she said, you don't think I want to live. It was, it was a conflict over me wanting her to do more, to try and improve her cardiovascular system and, you know, try some new treatments and, you know, we're improving our diet and doing those kinds of things. But I really wanted her to get out and walk more and exercise more. And she said, you don't think I want to live. I said, hold on, time out, babe. I know you want to live, but I genuinely question if you want to get better, if you really want to get better. And so in that conversation, in that FaceTime conversation where, where I turned to, what if this is the one you don't come home from? I said, you got to stick around for you. Two days later, she had this crazy experience with God in the hospital. She had, a nurse, she had an amazing nurse. The nurses and the doctors really stepped things up. And I, I commend them for the way in which they, they served Elizabeth during those three weeks that she was there. I really do. She she told me these amazing stories of her witnessing and just, you know, sharing her faith and meeting these amazing nurses. But there was one nurse in particular who um, was charismatic, spirit-filled, and started braiding Elizabeth's hair, mm. and just started praying over her. And Elizabeth said that night she like, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a vision. It was more real than a vision. But she said she was. She wasn't in her body. She was taken up, and she wasn't in heaven. But she was like somewhere in between, and she had this experience with God where she was. No words were spoken, but she just felt this pure love, much like the love that you you felt when at, when your accident, when you started to go into shock, and all of a sudden God's presence fell. She felt this love. And the next day she was telling me about it, and she said, "I'm sticking around for me." Perfect. All right. Yeah, we're doing this. We're doing this because a few months prior, our mutual friend, Kay Hidamine Mm -hmm. and another friend, Steve Gryson, had said, we're going to run a GoFundMe for Elizabeth. Well, you, you come up with a dream list, you know, like a dream doctor that you would want her to work with and any sort of exercise equipment, anything for her health, whatever. We'll get that money raised. We will get that done. I remember that. And I thought sweet. All right. So I was putting the final touches on that spreadsheet to figure out, you know, this, and I want to get this and I want to get this and I want to work with this doctor and just, it was all right, game on. And, uh, it was great. I mean, that week I was physically recovering from some real depression because all of this work, all of this effort, all of this energy that I was trying to put in into trying to get in to see her, I wasn't seeing any progress. And so she was slowly starting to recover from being in the ICU. And it was a week later after that experience with God that we had this 11 minute uh, FaceTime conversation where she announced, I think she had announced earlier that day, that the doctor said they were going to release her on Wednesday, the 20th thursday the 21st the latest would be friday the 22nd
0: well i remember that because you called me i think almost as soon as that facetime was over and I said like oh my god celebrate yeah. prayers answered yeah. elizabeth's yeah. coming home yeah like it was yeah. this awesome
1: and phone so call
0: and then contrast that with the next phone call i got from well
1: you. so we had this phone call this 11 t- 11 minute facetime call and we were starting to put the details in place about okay what I was going to spoil her to death Mm -hmm. and I was going to pour love into her. And I wanted to make sure it was at a pace that she was willing to receive. Cause I know she was still physically tired. I know that she was still worn out. So I didn't want to have, you know, 20 people come over, but I was okay, what about stag? You know, would you be okay with me having Tracy come over this day and Sue come over this day and Tina come over this day? And you know, what do you want for meals? We'll make your favorite meals. And what restaurants do you want us to go get takeout from? And we'll bring that home. And so we were starting to kind of plan that stuff out 30 minutes after I hung up on the call, I got a call from the hospital and I thought, sweet, they're releasing her tonight or details about tomorrow. As soon as I answered, the voice said, your wife's gone into cardiac arrest. You need to get up here now. It's a 90 minute drive. I jumped up. I looked at the boys and I said, guys, your mother's gone into cardiac arrest. Start praying. My mom was out there at this point because I was really doing that full court press and the media, and so she was out there to help out. Jumped in the Explorer, hit the road, started making phone calls, mobilizing friends to pray. 20 minutes into the call, I called the hospital. Said, give me an update. I said, we're still doing chest compressions. And I knew at that point she wasn't coming home. I called you at that point. At some point on that drive, and you said, bro, if you need me at the hospital, I'll be there. And I said, I said yeah, meet me there. As I was pulling into Denver, passing Ikea and the Denver Tech Center, mm-hmm. I called back to the hospital, just hoping for some good news. And their doctor, Dr. Bull, got on. He's like, I'm sorry, Steve. We weren't able to save her. Got to the hospital. You were there. You walked in with me. I wept like I haven't wept in my entire life. It came from such a guttural place. I don't remember how long that we were there. You were out in the hallway meeting, most of the time talking with the chaplain. Finally, I fed. once once all that emotion was out, I just sat with her for a while, and then I was like, "Alrighty." I- at the time her body started, the face started to lose color. I was all right, I got to go. Got her stuff. We walked out with the chaplain. And that's when I started making those hard phone calls to her sisters. Her mom had called already the hospital and she knew. She was so despondent, her husband answered and he was like, yeah, we know, we know. Called her dad. Didn't even think to call my family, but my my brothers started calling me. Drove home. You offered to take me home and I was like, no, I'll be okay. I'll I'll get this done. Got home. And this is to answer your question. Got home, told the boys. Caleb immediately jumped up. He's like, "I gotta ride my bike." He's a mover like me. He likes he, he needs these moves and processes. And okay, go for it. Matthew just sat there on the couch, sat, and sat, sat. After about fifteen minutes, I sat next to him, put my arm around him, and I tapped his chest. I said, "What's going on in there, bud?" He told me and said, "Daddy, I'm equal parts sad, equal parts pissed." Because the last three weeks of my mama's life were stolen from me. Was this the plan all along? We didn't see this coming with SARS, bird flu, swine flu, MERS, Ebola, Zika. Was this the plan all along to isolate people and increase the mortality risk? To completely and totally shut down our nursing homes? I understand protecting them. I totally get it. I totally, totally get it. But to isolate them to the point where I had a call last month with a new friend, a podcaster, business coach up in Denver, his mother had dementia, has dementia, Alzheimer's, I don't remember, Alzheimer's dementia. She knew him in March of 2020, eight months later, eight months later, when he was finally able to get in. She didn't recognize him. I saw it. Because of what I went through, friends would send me videos, send me news articles, that kind of stuff, and I I announced I needed to do something about this. I remember seeing a video of an elderly lady being videotaped by her son or daughter, I don't remember, from outside the window, and she was just pleading despondent. Why can't you be here? Why? 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 Come in. Why? Why? If this was the plan all along, it failed. It failed colossally. Because I believe, theres I've yet to find any stats, and if any listeners know of any stats that, that back this up, please send them to me. Or you. I believe with everything in me, more people have died because of the way in which we shut down than have actually died from COVID. And every death from COVID is an absolute tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy. But the deaths, because of the way in which we shut down, the loneliness, the isolation, the delayed medical treatments, the canceled AA meetings or the canceled drug rehab meetings, and fell back into it and they overdosed. That is even more of a tragedy and it's going to be felt and it's around the world, bro. It's around the, it's not just an American thing. It's around the world. I just, I just put in for to a job posting for a virtual assistant, Nigeria, Philippines, Singapore, they all say, yeah, I know of someone or I had a family member that was alone in the hospital and this is wrong. So. Coming out of that, I knew, I don't want to sound trite. I don't want to sound flippant. I knew God had given me this experience and this story to do whatever I possibly could to get enshrined, get the regulatory and legislative change needed In order to enshrine a patient right to have at least one screen visitor per day, no time limits. That's
0: all I'm asking for. And folks, you can hear the emotions, the pain you and the boys went through. Yeah. And here's the thing. You know, you watch the news today, you think it's gotten better. I'm still getting the calls. Here's the facts. I'm still getting the calls. Here's the facts. It hasn't. And you know what, I was talking to my wife about this with what this Never Alone project, right? You have people like Steve who've been there, who know that making a change has a generational impact, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, physically. You have those of us who have maybe been affected externally,
1: Right. For you personally, what was it like being there in the hospital alone?
0: I know, because I've been in God's presence, I know what's waiting for me. Yeah. I know that I'm okay. The hardest part for me was knowing that I might not get to say goodbye in person. That's what I thought about every day, Steve. Because I watched what you went through with your boys. And I didn't want that from my family. It's hard.
1: There is a unique trauma I'm finding of being robbed of being robbed of that opportunity. It's a unique trauma. And there is also trauma for all the women that gave birth alone. Mm -hmm. All the boyfriends, husbands, spouses, partners, whatever, that weren't able to be with them during that birth. My God, I can't imagine the anger that I would have if I had missed out on my boy's birth. I cannot imagine. There is trauma around getting a bad cancer diagnosis and not being able to have your the person you love the most in the world there next to you. There's trauma around doing chemo with or like in these there. cities
0: right now where they're because of this omicron which is honestly a non-threat sorry people are delaying all these diagnoses. then all of a sudden you get the diagnosis and you're like you know stage four but you know what we could have caught it at stage two sorry yeah. that's happening yeah. so I got to share with you guys you know with that Steve's passion folks we can change the entire narrative and histories of literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of families that are being affected right now by this. And Steve has taken all of this passion and hurt and anger and cause, and God has put on his heart this Driving desire to change the outcomes for everybody we've been talking about. And you know what it takes? I would just appeal to everybody listening. $5 a month, $10 a month. The Never Alone Project can go out and start introducing legislation in state by state by state so that families don't have to experience what Steve went through what my family feared, and what many of you have probably experienced personally, I have no doubt. If we can all get behind this, it doesn't take a lot. It takes a lot of people doing a little bit to make a huge difference. You know, I've been able to talk to Frank Stiller from Tunnel to Towers. Mm -hmm. You think about the huge impact they've made with, what is their pitch, $19 a month, just Guys, this money goes to affecting wounded veterans. It started out as this one idea in New York City after 9-11 that has grown into something that we're probably very familiar with because we've seen the advertisements. And it has moved the needle massively for our wounded veterans. So the Never Loan Project has the potential to do. is to have that same impact for the rest of us. The
1: goal, I mean really the ultimate goal, is to see national legislation that enshrines a patient's right to have at least one screen visitor per day.
0: And can I tell you what, we build some momentum between now and the midterms, if I'm just being real, and all of a sudden we have a change of, you know, the, the public speaks and there's a mandate. It's ideas like this that are going to be enshrined in law.
1: Fortunately, we do have four states now, well, really three, but kind of a fourth, that have passed no patient left alone bills. North Carolina, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Tennessee passed a very COVID-centric, it doesn't go beyond COVID, it's all around COVID. So we've seen some progress in some, I'm very in the middle, I'm not a member of any party. I look at both sides very warily So that's where I come from politically for listeners that that are listening. It's the red states. All my opposition here in Colorado has come from Democrats. I do have some Democrats who are absolutely supportive of this. They get it. But yeah, at least here in Colorado, we have run into opposition from Democrats. And... Yeah, and and
0: like you look at a, (laughs) you know, from, you know, you look, you put yourself above it Like watching a play down on the stage up from the balcony, this is one of those issues that I do not understand how a political affiliation would affect my feelings on an issue like this.
1: Really, it comes down to that collectivist mentality where we need to protect doctors, nurses, staff, patients at all costs even at the expense
0: Well, of, and what you're advocating for is, guess what? The family, the doctor, the nurses, like you've said many times, all have a
1: voice in creating something that, that works for everyone. Most doctors, nearly all doctors that I've talked to, 100% support this. Overwhelmingly, the nurses support this. Well, like every single one of your doctors and nurses
0: said, Steve, I would have you here in a second. We are not allowed to by local law. No, state it, it, law it, it,
1: it was in hospital policy. It wasn't local law and it wasn't state law. What it was is the administrators fell back on Medicaid and Medicare regulation. They said that and I, okay, really? what, regu- what regulation is that? What regulation is that? Never once got an answer. Hmm. Never once got an answer. Andy, so- Andy Perigo, who is a uh, state Senator Warren's, chief of staff. He's and I become really good friends. I've been with North Carolina since the outset of this and supporting Andy in whatever way I could in trying to help him out in, in getting this thing done. And so glad that it passed in North Carolina, which is a purple state Mm -hmm. Republican controlled house and Senate Democrat governor. And it passed unanimously.
0: So how do people get involved? What's the website? How do people go and say, you know what? Five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. Guys, let's all pitch in. What if we could have a couple, you know what? If we had a couple thousand a month coming in right now, right? Yeah. It would absolutely change your ability to make a huge, this
1: is, this is massive leverage. So how, how do people get involved? Right, right now, it's just me. And I'm not taking a cent out of this. I'm not taking a cent. And if it were up to me 100%, I would never take a cent. I loved Dr. Dobson's mission and his vision. Of making his money with his books, his writing, his speaking, that sort of stuff. And then he was 100% volunteer for Focus and for Family Talk. I'd love to be able to get to that point. But I have a feeling eventually some big donors can be like, you need to put full-time hours into this. You can't be, you got to put right-turn media on the back burner and just let that thing kind of close." Let's
0: get there. So how do people find you?
1: Neveralonepandemic.org. Neveralonepandemic.org and right there on the on the front page I've got a 2 minute video that, that we got produced that really kind of encapsulates summarizes my story oh, yeah, cast the vision cast the vision and for people that are listening that you know even 5 bucks a month is a stretch right now cuz they're unemployed or they're underemployed or they're whatever there are other ways in which you can help and other ways in which people that also can donate that can donate can help i'm asking people to share share the story share your never alone story. Share that this organization exists and is trying to get off the ground. Share personally with people. Share on social media. I'm asking people to volunteer. You know, if you have a skill set that can help, volunteer five hours a week, 10 hours a week, whatever, five hours a month, whatever. Help out. I'm asking people to connect. Connect me with people that. See this vision, connect me with potential donors, connect me with big podcasts because I can run myself ragged doing smaller podcasts and I've done a handful of those, but I really try and focus on the stuff that's going to move the needle. Share, connect me with reporters, connect me with TV personalities, connect me with the talking heads that are on, you know, on the cable news networks, connect me with doctors and nurses that are willing to stand up publicly and share Yes, I believe in this. I 100% stand with this. And I'm willing to share my story of what I saw on the inside Mm -hmm. and how this should never happen again. Hospital administrators, people within government, and then obviously donate. And really with the donation, I've, I've got some specific targets that I'm really trying to do. Number one is I'm trying to hire a virtual assistant for me because I'm doing this all by myself. And I need someone who's working full time back behind the scenes that is helping to, you know, get, book my calendar, be strategic with stuff, you know, get the meetings set up, follow ups with reporters, that kind of stuff. And then I'm also looking for help with PR. So I'm looking to hire someone part time with PR that's able to get me booked on the bigger stuff, that's able to get me on Fox, get me on CNN, get me on MSNBC, get me in the Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, and Washington Post, and LA Times. And you know, all of those major newspapers, news outlets, news, whatever around the nation. I'm looking for then marketing help. So I'm, and you know, I've, I've got a marketing company, Michael and Catherine Redmond, who have been on the podcast, great friends. They've got mm-hmm. a proposal for me ready to go where it's like, you know, we're going to help you with all of this stuff. So I'm trying to raise some money to get that off the ground. Cause I know I need, I know I need that help. And then I've got the, this idea of hiring a community manager. A few weeks ago, I listened to this podcast, a marketing podcast, because the coaching group that I'm in, they challenged to listen to something outside of your wheelhouse that you're trying to grow in. And so I found this just short little marketing podcast that I try and devour every morning before I get going in the morning. And they had this guy on, David Spinks. He has a company called ACX, I believe. And it's all about developing community managers. And he has a book called The Business of Belonging. And the uh, subtitle is how to make community your competitive advantage. And I know with something like this, with people who have gone it's through this, community. it's and about community and, experience. And, 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 and while yeah. the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is the legislation. Mm-hmm. And really you and I have talked about this because you're on the board along with my mother-in-law, mm-hmm. Deanne Rogers, go, go. I've talked about this. As soon as we get to that point, I have nothing to do. And I'm either going to shut it down where I'm going to hand it over to Gogo, and she's then going to convert it over into really patient advocacy, teaching patients how to advocate for themselves mm-hmm. and really use the tools that they have learned. So that way the chronically ill can learn the tools that they learned to not make that chronic illness, their identity, but instead really try and, uh, you know, learn how to advocate for themselves within the medical system because Elizabeth went through so much dealing with the insurance companies. My God, God, the tears, the times that she would just cry on my shoulder over or into my chest over just the phone calls and being on hold, spending half the day talking with the insurance companies, trying to get stuff done. It was unbelievable. To get an approval or so, follow a claim. Oh, my gosh. And so people that donate or want to volunteer or share or connect me understand this, this isn't going to be something that I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life unless we don't get to that point, but I do believe we will get there. My end goal is the legislation period. But in the meantime, I want to mobilize a community to raise awareness about this. So that way we can heal together and see change. Mm. That's what I'm looking to do with this. And once I get there, I'm done. I'm moving on. Steve, you're an inspiration. You're an amazing man.
0: Thanks brother. Guys out there listening, man, this has been quite a journey. I'm sure you guys have felt emotions I felt just listening to Steve and his story. Let's be part of the work God is doing, I believe, right now in this nation. I believe, Steve, everything you've been through, everything I've been through, everything you've been through listening serves a purpose because God is moving right now, big time, and it's time for the body of Christ to to rise up to be known, to be a voice, to advocate, to love God and love others. And what a beautiful way to love others than the most vulnerable. People with dementia, people that are critically ill, our kids that are sitting there because of our health system,
1: and they're alone. And that that honestly, for me, the kids one was one of the scariest stories that I read. A friend of mine forwarded me a story on Twitter, seven-year-old, I think he broke his arm. Mom wasn't allowed into the ER. They wouldn't even let the kid have his teddy bear. How do we lose our humanity in this? How do we get to this point where we lost our humanity to that point that a seven-year-old is forced to be in an emergency room alone without his mother there, even his teddy bear? What kind of fear of the medical system is that kid going to have moving forward? Chances are, if it's not him, it's going to be someone else that they're going to be 40. They're going to be 30 years from now. They're going to be in their forties and they're going to have some heart pain and they're going to ignore it because they're like, ah, I'm not going to a doctor. I'm fine. I'm good. And they're going to leave their wife and kids without their dad. All because of the seed that was planted because of the way in which we shut down. Mm. John, I'm doing this. Number one, I'll be frankly honest, I'm doing this number one because I never want to go through that pain again. I don't but I also want... also know you heart. hurt. Like,
0: you don't want other people who, like, you know what, I'm good right now. But guess what? A year and a half ago, you thought you and Elizabeth were good. You really did. Yeah. You thought there was hope. You thought things were getting better. <laughs> you guys were on a good trajectory. And folks, I'm telling you, my wife, 10 years ago, minus a day did not think that she was going to get the call saying, you need to get up here with the kids because it doesn't look good. Yeah. I don't want anyone else to go through that. I, I don't want what, any of my what, friends. What would have happened those five weeks that I was in ICU if it was in this environment? I don't think... You know, bro, I haven't thought about bro, that before.
1: Bro, I don't think, I don't think, be
0: think I'd be where I am today. No. Had I had my mom, my wife, my dad, my friends, you in that room with me literally I don't think I was alone rarely was I alone during that period of time that was the most one of the most devastating scariest critical times of my life I don't honestly know I haven't thought about this before where I'd be today had I had to go through that five weeks in
1: isolation Elizabeth I don't think I would have made it I don't know in 2014 had we not been there I don't think Elizabeth would have come home had we been there in 2020, I believe with everything in me, everything in me, my boys... She'd be here right now. My boys would still have their mother. Yeah. My boys would still have their mother. I, You and know so, what? And so, and so I don't doing-
0: believe that. That's not hyperbole. I know, Elizabeth. If we had been able to be there, you and the boys and people have been able to come because in and go, go. You know what? That's what she would... That's what she needed to hold on. And also, guess what? The nurses and doctors can't be there 24-7. No. And you know what? You, somebody has to be an advocate because... You know what, where I got my best care is Donna sitting next to my bed literally 24 7. She was exhausted. Asking the and all of a sudden she's questions. seeing something like this yep. is deteriorating. Yep. And she's the one demanding the nurse come in. She's demanding the certain doctor come in. Yep. And that's what got me the care. Yep. Like when I had meningitis and uh, pancreatitis yep. and all these things hit, she's yep. the one that was calling in. She yep. was my advocate. And when you're alone, you don't have an advocate. The last three weeks... The doctors come in, the nurses what come in once, in the ICU,
1: what, every two, four hours? Yeah. That's not enough. Sorry. The, the last week of Elizabeth's life, she complained about lower back pain. And I told her, babe, as soon as I get in there, I'm going to rub your lower back. I'll rub your glutes. I'll rub your hamstrings. Your mom, who's a massage therapist, she'll take care of you. Bro, the autopsy showed it was kidney stones. And as great as the care was, as much as they could do, and as much as they went over and above and beyond, they never once asked, hey, what's this lower back pain? What could this be? And had we been there, we would have been able to ask those questions. So we need this because I never want to go through this. I never want any of my closest friends and loved ones to go through this. And if Forgiveness is how Dr. Archibald Hart called this. I heard him say this on the Focus broadcast. Forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Mm. That's forgiveness. Wow. And if that's forgiveness, I don't even want Dr. Michelle Barron, the head of infectious disease at University of Colorado Hospital, Anschutz Campus, If she was traveling with her husband, because I'm not foolish to believe that if she was in the hospital, they'd get her husband in. (laughs) I know the medical community. And She's the one that said
0: no to you over and over, right? She was the one that said no. Just to put it in context for
1: everybody listening. Yeah. She actually inserted herself into Elizabeth's case after I started squawking to the media. And Elizabeth fell in love with her. She felt like she connected with her. And I was like, babe, you're getting played. You're getting played. She's coming in like good cop to try and get me to stop squawking to the media. See, the head of infectious disease has, has come in to swoop in and help out in this case. See, we're giving her the best care that we possibly can. I texted her. Elizabeth got her cell phone number, and I snuck into Elizabeth's computer and got that cell phone number. And I texted Dr. Michelle Barron. I said, please let me in. And I got a reply that was clearly given by a lawyer. No. Even her. Even her. So that she could be there for her husband. Or her husband could be there. And have that same protection. And not go through what, what I went through. And what thousands and thousands and thousands of other... Likely millions. Likely millions of people went through some sort of a lone situation during this. Oh. But likely hundreds of thousands... Unfortunately, there's no stats for how many people died alone during this, but I estimate it's probably hundreds of thousands, if not a million plus.
0: Well, Steve, thank you for coming on and sharing. My gosh, this has been deep. In folks listening, please, neveralonepandemic.org, jump in. Donate some hours. Find a, Steve shared with you beautifully what he needs. Let's make a difference. Let's do this in the honor of Elizabeth, writer. And Amazing. And also honor of. So many, like probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of others. Likely
1: everyone listening knows of some sort of story where someone they know personally was in the hospital alone.
0: And here's what we have the power to do. Is the, the people moving forward, Never they have a different time. narrative. They, they, they have a different story. You know that what an incredible witness that is so steve with that thank you everybody out there pray for steve and his kids and while you're doing that pray for those folks that you know and pray for those folks that you don't know that are right now in that place that you heard steve speaking from a place of just pain and grief and healing and seeking god's guidance as they're walking through this to see Where this brings them as a family, because sometimes when you're in the middle of that storm, it is really hard to see. So with that, brother, I love you with all my heart. You are the best. And I thank you for everything about who you are. Thanks, bro. I love you too. Love you too, man.